so what are what is nirvana? Well, you know, when the Buddha was asked directly what nirvana is, he, he didn't say anything. So it really it's hard for us to understand nirvana. Yeah. Number one. Nirvana has three characteristics for sure. The first characteristic in nirvana is that you end your suffering. Second characteristic is you end your karma. And the third characteristic is you end all future rebirth. Okay. No suffering, no karma, no future rebirth. That's what happens when you get to nirvana. I don't know if you would be able to ascertain that suffering has stopped. You know? Because, you know, you go through the day, and if there's no suffering or no happiness, it's sort of like, well, it's just sort of, there's, there's really nothing to catch your attention. Is there? The idea of no karma is just fascinating to me, because what that means is that if karma is the very thing that migrates lifetime to lifetime, and there is no karma, then there can be no future rebirth. Then you come up to the problem of, well, are you guys saying that the ultimate goal of Buddhism is not to exist? <laughs> and, and why would anybody go on the bandwagon for that? You know, what does it mean? And, and so this is what I've come to understand. This is my own personal interpretation of all this stuff. That when you achieve nirvana, it's realized and not created, so it doesn't have to end. And then when you die, you exist because of your nirvana and not because of birth or death. Because after, after death, we have a way of existing until we get to the next lifetime. Before birth, we have a way of existing because of the past lifetimes that have led to this lifetime. But they've all been connected to life and death. And now we've come to a place where there's no life and death, unborn and undying. And, and yet we exist in some unique way, some way that we can't even think about because everything we think about is on earth and everything on earth was created and eventually will be destroyed. So we have no reference points at all to understand something that wasn't created and will not be destroyed. No reference points. Okay. So it's like being a turtle in a fish pond, you know? The turtle gets to leave and sun itself on the rock. Then it comes back in the little fish pond. And all the fish are so eager to hear what the turtle experienced on the rock. And no matter what the turtle says, the fish just can't understand it because they can't leave the pond. So we can't leave samsara, which is our pond, human pond. And the Buddha is like the turtle that says, well, it's really good, but I can't tell you what it is, because even if I tried to, you wouldn't understand, because it's not within your experience, or your knowledge, or your stories. It's completely outside of that. Now... Having said all that, what would be some of the characteristics, perhaps, of a person who did achieve nirvana? Whether they knew about it or not, and I have a feeling they don't know. I got a feeling that just sort of one day they wake up and, and they just start experiencing stuff differently and maybe they think they have the flu.
you know, and yet they achieve nirvana. Number one, they have loving kindness. That every intention they have is based on love and kindness. Now in Buddhism, rarely do we use the word love alone. It's always connected to kindness. And sometimes the word love, or even the activity of love, can degenerate into control. You know? And necessity. And that wouldn't be love. That would be something else. Have you ever heard on the news, they say, I loved her so much, I didn't want anybody else to have her, and I killed her. And you go, really? You loved her so much that you killed her? Well, for me, that's not love. That's insanity. Okay, so Buddhism says, you got to have love with kindness. Because kindness tempers love. Kindness makes love a good thing all the time. It never gets to be a control issue. Okay? So the intention, the thought pattern, is rooted in love and kindness. Now we come to activity. The activity of an enlightened person is always compassionate activity. And what is compassionate activity? That's an intention that manifests as activity, the intention of loving-kindness, intention is in the mind, manifests as compassion and activity, and that activity always reduces suffering, never increases suffering. So compassion and activity is not sitting there thinking you're going to do good things. Compassion and activity is going out into the world doing good things, and the reason they're good is because they reduce suffering. You like that one? So that's two down. Oh, okay, one more time. Oh, compassion? Yeah, what you just said. Compa- yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to say it twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> compassion and activity always reduces suffering. It's based on the intention of loving-kindness. So if somebody says they love you, and their activity creates suffering in your life, that's not love, and that's not compassion. That is a whole different issue. Number three, the enlightened person always has sympathetic joy. So what does that mean, sympathetic joy? That means the enlightened person no longer has his own, his own happiness. The enlightened person finds his or her happiness in the happiness of others. Mm. The enlightened person no longer has his or her own success. They have their success when it's found in the success of others. Sympathetic joy. See how that works? Now, the fourth one, the fourth one is equanimity. Perfect balance of mind. The enlightened person never picks sides. One side is never better than the other side. It's always in the middle. That sounds like a cop-out sometimes, because we pick sides, because we have come to the conclusion that one side is better, but there is no better or worse when it comes to the enlightened person. It just is. And if there's more suffering on this side than that suffering, than this side, then they go for helping the one who's suffering more. Okay, so they're always active, but they're active because of their environment and their interconnection to others. It's not self-focused. And that can be 
a problem because sometimes you get so unfocused about yourself that your life falls apart. You know, you don't eat as much as you should, you give all your money away because everybody needs money. You, you invite a hundred cats instead of ten cats, and you just and, and, and your life stops because you you miss something. You only had compassion. You didn't have wisdom. So Buddhism has two wings: compassion and wisdom, and they walk and they work off each other. So that's what I think about Nirvana. Is that good? Okay, I'm sorry to follow up with that. Yes, yeah. Because the last part of that was with the bodhisattvas, then wouldn't they know that they've attained nirvana to make the choice to come back with those who haven't? Oh, good point. Okay, the bodhisattva is a concept that started with the Mahayana, not in the Theravada, early Buddhism. Shanti, Reverend Shanti is Theravada. it is a completely different kind of Buddhism. Uh, you have Catholicism and then you have the Protestants. And they're both Christians, but they're, they're unique in the way they perceive their Christianity. And Mahayana and Theravada are both Buddhist, but they are different in the way they perceive the, their Buddhism. So, Theravada, early Buddhism, it's all about Nirvana. It's all about being an Arahant. It's not about being a bodhisattva. Um, An arhant is someone who has achieved the status of a Buddha without being a Buddha. And the reason the Buddha is unique is because he didn't have a teacher. He self-realized the path and the goal. And then, for 45 years, he taught how to do it, and then people who listened to his teachings achieved the same level of nirvana that he did, but because they listen to the teachings, they aren't a Buddha. They're an arahant. Okay? Now, Mahayana Buddhism, sort of like the Protestants, came up. And they said, you know what? You're being directed by the monks. You know? And now we have some of the texts available to us that we can read. Does that sound like Martin Luther a little bit? You know? and, and so the control that the, that the priests had over us we're going to have, we're going to cast those shackles aside. And the Buddhists said the same thing, you know, it's, we can do it ourselves. We can read, we can practice, we can achieve enlightenment. Ah, enlightenment, not nirvana, enlightenment. Two different, Two different things according to me. Okay, so, so that's different. So let me, let me tell you, nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirth. Enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. When you have that experience, when you be connected, when you have become connected and aware of that, you now have no option other than being of help to those who are suffering because they have literally become part of you. So now, in the Mahayana and the Bodhisattva ideal, you postpone your Nirvana. You say, even if I'm getting close, I'm not going to realize it or accept it until all others have accepted their Nirvana. Once everyone else has been saved, I will then accept my Nirvana, Bodhisattva.
So how long do you think that's going to take? Forever. <laughs> They're never going to achieve nirvana. They're always going to be enlightened and helping others. Because Buddhism has been on earth for 2600 years. Do we have less suffering now or more suffering? More suffering. We even have internet. We can suffer virtually. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's sort of one of those things that you just go, this is going to be forever. So the goal becomes meaningless then. It's the process that becomes the most important. Insight after insight in that corner. Right? <laughs> um, okay, so back when we were first talking about Nirvana, you were saying that... Okay, wait. So someone who has achieved it will come back and do the love, kindness, compassion activity, all these things. No. Someone who has achieved Nirvana doesn't come back. All future rebirths have come to a stop. You'll never see them again. Okay, so they, I so, Nirvana right now, but I still live for tomorrow? Yes, if you're in Nirvana right now, you will live out your life. And once you die, you'll be gone. Now, as a bodhisattva, if you're enlightened, you take a vow to be reborn as many times as it takes to achieve nirvana for all the other people, all the other humans. Then you accept your nirvana. So the bodhisattva comes back lifetime after lifetime and does all that stuff. The arahant, the one who has achieved nirvana, at the end of this lifetime, never see him again. Gone. Okay, now, you. yes? So, <laughs> again, I achieve it today, right? You achieve it today. But then... Oh, oh okay. you're talking about my description, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity? Yeah. Yes. I think those are some of the characteristics that will define you as an arhat. It won't be intentional. It'll, it'll be the only way you can be. Okay, but then can you lose? Can you like... Until you die. Can you lose... Nirvana? Okay, nirvana? can you lose nirvana? No. Yeah. No. But you can lose enlightenment. Enlightenment happens sometimes just momentarily, and you, it's like a curtain pulling aside, and you see something, and you go, whoa, cool. And, but you never see it again. Sometimes you even question whether you saw it in the first place. But then there are longer kinds of, uh, of enlightenment that happens maybe, you know, like a day or two days or a week that really has a way of affecting you and changing you. And I think back in the 60s and 70s when people were, were doing like LSD and, and psychedelics and, you know, off the launch pad and they were going to try to change the way they perceived the world. What happened, it happened too fast. You know, like one night in this period of six hours, they had like 12 enlightenment experiences. Okay. And, and then they wake up the next day and they can't remember any of them. None of that's going to be integrated into how they're going to live today or tomorrow. It was just like uh, a fantastic experience and now it's gone forever. Meditation, on the other hand, is slow and methodical and eventually changes you moment by moment and it doesn't necessarily go away. But people who are enlightened don't stay at the same level of enlightenment. Sometimes they go back a little bit, sometimes they go ahead a little bit. And it doesn't end their suffering. They're still suffering like everybody else. But what they've seen is the ultimate reality that Buddhism has to offer. And the ultimate reality in Buddhism is not God. 
It is the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That's the ultimate reality in Buddhism. The relative reality in Buddhism is we are all separate, we are all independent, we are all intellectual, we are all dualistic. That's the relative reality where we live 99.9% of the time. But the ultimate reality is available to us and it will change our relative reality if we experience it enough. So the idea in this meditation practice, and Buddhism in particular, is to learn how to dance between the relative and the ultimate. To know what's appropriate, not get caught in category error. Somebody asks you where Pacoima is, you don't tell them about the universe. That's category error. <laughs> so it's an interesting dance, and some of the best teachers we have in America and in the world are dancing really well. They're able to share their understanding with people who are interested and give them a glimpse of an ultimate reality that everybody has access to. Mm. And, and, and so then you go, whoa. So what happens when you have that first experience? Well, the problem with having that first experience is that nobody is going to understand what you went through. You're going to question it. It's never going to happen again never going to happen again. You can chase it for two years and it's going to be different. Why is that? Buddhism says everything in our life only happens once. Isn't that a bummer? Mm -hmm. That everything only happens once. Some things look familiar. Some things look like they might have happened before but in a slightly different way. So every time we have a spiritual experience it's only once. And the idea then is to integrate that into your relative reality to use that as a reference point. And kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, those are wonderful reference points to have, to see how that experience is shaping you. And, and if you think that you're enlightened, again, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, what does that mean? I think I've had that experience, and if you're still a jerk, you probably haven't had it. It hasn't changed anything, you know? So, does that make sense? We have these two distinct ways of looking at Buddhism. Theravada, Mahayana, Arhant, Bodhisattva, Nirvana, Enlightenment. Okay. <laughs> it's like very confusing. Okay, but I have another question, which... It is sort of confusing. You might have been explaining, but it's the Bodhisattva that decides to come back. Yes, like the next takes a vow. Okay, but I thought, maybe I wasn't understanding. I thought you said that you... Okay, how do I say this? So Bodhisattva takes the vow to like come back. Un until everybody has been saved. Everybody? And then... Everybody. And then you said Even that you. if they were to... No, or know or think that they achieved. Yes. Then you don't think that they've achieved it. Right. So then, how how do those? Well, there's really no together? point in thinking that you've achieved it because Buddhism is not about being somebody; it's about doing something. Okay. And everybody wants to be something, you know. And what does it mean to be something? If if it's not played out in what you do. So Buddhism focuses on what are you doing, not who you think you are. Because they, they, uh, Buddhism has just annihilated any concept of self. 
saying you're completely deluded, it doesn't, you don't exist in the way you think you do, you are a process, you are not an event, mm-hmm. you know? And so to say, I am an event, I am a bodhisattva, I have become something, it just reeks with, you know, delusion. The guy needs to go and work at McDonald's for a while, you know, get back to reality a little bit, you know. Now, if the guy is going out and feeding the hungry and finding homes for the homeless, and you could just say, those are bodhisattva activities. But most of those people who really do that stuff don't consider themselves to be special. They're just doing what needs to be done. See? They don't label themselves as, you know, really good and compassionate people. They're just, you know, we might label them, you know. And so that's when you start to see the delusion, the self-delusion, when people start creating themselves in a way they think they exist. So then how, how does a bodhisattva decide that they're going to keep going if they're not... Who they think they are. Yeah. Because people keep suffering. They're going after the suffering. They're not going after the people. See, they're not trying to make the people's lives any better. They're just trying to reduce the suffering in the people's lives. Now that sounds really weird, I know, but we haven't talked about what suffering is. So what is suffering? (laughs) Okay. The best definition of suffering that I've ever heard came from a seventh grader named Esmeralda in Glendale, California, (laughs) as I was giving a talk in her history class. And at the end of my talk, she raised her hand and said, Reverend Kusla, I now understand what suffering is. Suffering is when you want things to be different than they are. Wow. Okay. So what does that mean? That suffering does not exist in the world. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it or touch it. It has no shape or form. Suffering is an internal reality. Suffering is a wanting, a desire, a clinging to some concept of how it could be, and it's not. So we go and we and these people are clinging to eating lunch. They're hungry. They haven't eaten in three days. All they want is some food. That's how it should be. Every human should have access to food. And they don't. A lot of humans starve and die. So the Bodhisattva says, okay, that person thinks they should have access to food. I'm going to reduce their suffering by giving them food. Now there's another person, a mile down the road, who's at a meditation center, who's doing a 20-day fast. The Bodhisattva is not going to go give that person food because that person is fasting. The person who's starving, both of them don't have food. They haven't had food for 10 days. The person that's starving thinks it should be different than it is, and the Bodhisattva goes after that suffering. Does that make sense at all? Can you see the difference between fasting and starving? It's the same thing, absolutely. But one person is doing it because it's the right thing to do. They're going to gain something from fasting. The other person is starving and has nothing to gain except pain and suffering. So the Bodhisattva goes after the suffering. Hmm. This stuff is really difficult to understand because it's so contrary to what most people think. It's so contrary. It's just the opposite. And it took me years and years to even be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know? 
And before I talked about it, I had to understand it. And that took years as well. And then as I oversimplify some of these very complicated concepts, people just look at me and they're just like completely lost because it's the first time their ears have ever vibrated in that way. Those are the first time those words have been put together that way to try to convey a different kind of personal experience. Never heard it before. How can it be true? I don't know. I guess I should read some more, maybe do some meditation, see what the Buddha said, see if I can find that in my own life. Maybe it is true, maybe it's not true. Da, 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 da. So these are the seeds that are planted to give inspiration to the converts, to the people that say, well, maybe this has something for me, which is what happened to me in 1979. It happened to me. I said to myself, all these words these guys are talking about and gals what the hell are they talking about? One meditation teacher said, the walls are transparent. And I'm going, whoa! Can he see through those walls? I want to be able to do that. And what he was really saying, the concept of a wall is transparent. But see, I couldn't hear that. I just looked at the wall and said, I can't see through it. This guy's got some magic going on. You know, so... It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of, of evolving personal evolution and allowing you to experience the world in a unique way. Not the right way or wrong way, but just a unique way. And then maybe ultimately it becomes your way, the way you experience the world. And now you find that you don't fit in everywhere like you used to because you have a different experience from all your friends and family and, and you have to keep your mouth closed because you don't want them to feel sorry for you or think that something happened to you and you need to go in for uh, intervention. Yeah. And, 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 and then you start finding around the neighborhood or around your work experience or school experience other people that have had similar experiences and look at it in a similar way and you go, whoa, I'm not the only one. This, this can be a shared experience and, I, and, and, and the basis of the shared experience is doing some of these Buddhist technologies like meditation or chanting and, and it, it helps me have that experience. Now, can you ever go back? You can't. You're stuck. You can't go back. You can't go back to thinking Santa Claus really existed. George Washington didn't cut down the cherry tree. You can't go back and you're going and saying, oh man, I'm stuck now. I can't go back to how I used to be and with those really comfortable thoughts of how it was. And I was so warm and cozy with my cup of tea, you know, watching Netflix. And I, I can't go back there anymore. I don't find that to be as satisfying as reality. And so the only thing you can do is go forward. Because you can't stop, you see. You can't stop because everything keeps changing. You're in that process now. You can't stop, you can't go back, you can only go forward. So it takes, it takes courage to have a spiritual life. You know, no matter what it is, it takes courage because not everybody's going to be on board. Not everybody's going to understand, and, and you may not understand, and, and yet forced to make that next step and that next step and that next step either with faith or confidence, that it's going to lead you to a better place or a place with less suffering or a place with more, you know, intuition. Mm -hmm.